Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of Episodes. Today's episode is from Sabrina's perspective and is titled Tremors. So in her last episode, which was episode four, Sabrina fights nausea and past memories in the bathroom before she does her closing argument for a very big case involving pay discrimination. She pinches her sides, which calms her, and you can see the Real Talk episode I did with my friend Bianca about the issue of self-harm on my YouTube page. Just search Leslie Quigless on YouTube, and Sabrina goes on to win the case. Later that night, she takes on Brian Carver, the defense attorney in that case, in the bedroom. Mm. And <laughs> I'm so corny. Anyway, and while they're doing their thing, she gets a phone call from someone named Connie, whom we find out in episode six which is Sylvie's episode, we find out that that person is Sabrina's estranged twin sister. So that is where her storyline left off, and here we go. Episode 8, Sabrina, Tremors. Brian Carver called me earlier this week. I didn't pick up. I had enjoyed our romp in court with the Mary Torley pay discrimination case, and I had enjoyed our romp later that evening after I won. I will say, that man did his dick pick justice. Still, I try to space out any repeat sex I have, no matter how good it is. I don't need the attachment. So when he called again tonight, I almost didn't pick up. I was watching Muhammad Ali's 1970 match against Sonny Bonavina, and I was watching that fight because I was reeling from Sylvie's voicemail. It was only 10 seconds long. Hey girl, um, can you call me when you have a minute? Okay, talk soon, bye. But my left hand tremored the moment she spoke. My body always knows when Connie is near. It's one thing to hear her voice. She called me from prison a couple of times, the last time she'd been there. I hung up on her both times. But my body always knows when Connie is physically near. I put down the phone and surmised what must have happened. When I wouldn't speak to Connie the night I won the case and had Brian over, she tracked down Sylvie. She knew Camille wasn't fucking with her. And she and Jamie had been cool in college, but only through Sylvie. Connie, after all, was much of the reason Sylvie got into UNC Chapel Hill and got that full ride there in the first place. Connie, being brilliant, did it first herself, and when she saw Sylvie's potential, she helped her do the same thing. Connie also was the reason Sylvie eventually got kicked out of North Carolina, but that's another story. So Connie tracked down Sylvie, which wouldn't have been that hard to do. And Sylvie saw her and felt sorry for her. And Sylvie gave Connie some information about how to find me. And now, Sylvie is letting me know what she's done. And that Connie is in town. My left hand tremors. Instinctively, I cover it with my right hand. The same way, I suppose, I had covered Connie in our mother's womb. The same way I covered dumbass Cecil's stomach wound after I stabbed him. My lips twist in a thin smile as I remember the look of horror in his hazel eyes. Sabrina! Jamie had cried, frightened. Sabrina, stop! But she'd been rooted to the spot, just like Connie, who had stood beside her, her face blank as virgin snow. 
It had only been a flesh wound, though, which was all I had intended to inflict. Lots of blood, not much damage. Just enough so Cecil's dumbass knew not to ever call himself bum-rushing me. Next time, I said to him, I will kill you, and I will cover it up well, and no one will know it was me. And I'd looked at Connie, at the face that had once been my face, and I saw her register that I was serious, because I was. And she'd shrunk back and urged Cecil to, come, come on, let's go. A few days later, she and Cecil's dumbass were arrested for armed robbery. They'd held up a gas station in broad daylight. Cecil's dumbass had sent Connie inside and was in the getaway car. Somehow, maybe because they were both so high, they missed the police car on the other side of the parking lot. Sylvie, I know, will be worried that I'm upset with her. I'm not. I know where Sylvie comes from. I know why she has her weaknesses. And Connie always finds me eventually. The urge announces itself, a peculiar light inside and knowing. My sides vibrate with the need. I have to pinch. You got shit for brains, Sarah. My breath drags in, drags out. I have to pinch until I bleed this time. That's right, you ain't shit. Your mama ain't shit and neither's your sister. I can smell the need now. I'm inhaling it and it is inhaling me too. Shit, Connie's the smarter one and the prettier one. You, Sarah? You ain't good for nothing but laying on your fucking back, just like your fucking mother. The need smells sickly sweet, like a dead mouse. But now, I'm sick too, and the fragrance is home. I want to go home. The need is sex now, primary, elemental. My right hand shakes from the vibration of my left hand beneath it. And just before I'm completely plunged, I hear the professor's voice in my head all those years ago, a flash of light in the dark into which I am about to drown. The law is music, he's saying. Can you hear it, Sabrina? I open my mouth to make a sound, but nothing emerges. Ali could hear it. Ali, Muhammad Ali, the professor used to make me watch Ali's fights. And that thought is a tiny break that I need. I stand slightly nauseous now, but now I'm on my feet. And that is enough momentum to flip open my laptop, to go to YouTube, to search Muhammad Ali, Oscar Bonavina, and there it is, the first result, the full fight. It was only Ali's second fight after having been banned from the sport for three years for refusing to be drafted, and many thought Ali shouldn't have fought Bonavina, who was known as the bull, because of how hard he punched. He knocked out 37 of his 45 previous opponents. The professor used to make me watch all of Ali's boxing matches. The law is a fight, yes, Sabrina, he'd say. But if you are smart, which you are, then you must see it as art, too. I gaze now at the computer screen, remembering how the professor would gaze at the TV screen 
at either a younger or older fighting Ali. Hal's lips would turn up in a slight smile. The law is music, he'd say. Can you hear it, Sabrina? Ali could hear it in the boxing ring. And that is why he not only fought in the ring, but he danced. I turn up the computer volume, force myself to concentrate on the fight, and the urge recedes some. Ali takes more of a beating in this particular fight than any other up to this point. As I watch, my breathing eases. My left hand stills, and I can feel myself becoming her again, the person I invented, the person I built. I am not Sarah anymore. I am Sabrina Wright. Because just like Ali heard the music in the boxing ring, I learned from the professor to hear the music of the law. The music that is the law. I hear it in every case. It's the music that gives me my edge. Sometimes it is that music alone, the law alone, my work with Scotty at Schmuller in Denver that keeps me going. And then in the eighth round, Brian Carver called. By the time he arrives, the fight has just ended. In the 15th and final round, Ali took Bonavina out with a rarely used left hook. It was a grimy fight, one of my favorites. Grimy, rough, is how I like my cases. It's also how I like my sex and the urge in my sides has subsided and moved between my legs. I have to release. When Brian knocks on my door, I am ready. A couple of hours later, I remember myself and I am clear of all my earlier confusion. Sex does give me back to myself and I am fully Sabrina Wright again. And Sabrina Wright graduated summa cum laude from Duke Law School. And Sabrina Wright is the winningest lawyer at her firm. Oof, I'm glad I work out, Brian says, panting. And he's moving, I see, out of the corner of my eye to put his left arm around me. I accidentally elbow that arm with my right one as I pretend to brush my hair out of my face and stand. Hey, Brian protests, where you going? I grit my teeth. I'm going to have to watch him. After all, this is the second time he's called this week, and it's just Thursday. It's annoying when men who swear up and down, they don't give a fuck, really do. To be fair, I think Brian, like all men in this category, mean what they say in the beginning when they stumble through the just looking for something casual conversation, but they flounder when they encounter a woman who's just as smart and sexual and ambitious and as driven as they, but who truly doesn't give a fuck, or perhaps just gives less of one, who knows. Either way, it's annoying when they turn mushy. Mushy is untenable for long-term casual boning. It could just be a fluke though, I think, sneaking a quick glance at Brian. Some men call more than others, especially in the beginning. But the arm around me thing tonight, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking. I'm just gonna have to watch him. I'm going to the bathroom, I say. Peeing right after sex prevents UTIs.
UTIs? Brian asks. Urinary tract infections, I clarify. That's, that's not the same as yeast infections, right? Is it? I chuckle as I pad to the bathroom. <laughs> no, Brian. It's not, I say. When I come back, Brian is texting on his phone. He looks grim. It looks like BJ has a fever, he says. Who's BJ? I ask. Brian looks up at me, a quizzical smile on his face. Are you serious? He says. I look back at him, bunning up my hair. Is it wrong if I am? I say. Brian sets his phone in his lap, staring at me. You do have a nice body, he murmurs. I don't work out every day for no reason, I say. Another lesson from the professor. Martial arts, running, lifting weights. Strengthen the body to strengthen the mind, Sabrina, he used to say. Brian's eyes move appreciatively down my neck, my small, pert breast, my stomach, my ass, back to my stomach. He frowns. What happened to your sides? He asks. I turn off the lights and slide back under the sheets. Who is BJ again? I say. I hear his phone settle on the other nightstand. He pulls me to him, spoons me. I grit my teeth, but allow it. BJ is my son, says Brian. Brian, Jr. I talk about him all the time, Sabrina. Oh, I say. And I know now this isn't going to work. Yeah, says Brian. He's, he's pretty much my world. Oh, I say again. It is definitely time to stop picking up his calls. I wish I'd remembered he has a kid and that the kid lives in the same city and that he's actually involved with the kid. I don't do children and I don't do touchy-feely dads either. I feel Brian's fingers on my side, my scars. Surprisingly, most men don't notice them or at least they don't ask about them. So what's with this? Brian asks. Nothing, I say. It's nothing. Brian pauses. Then he says, Did somebody hurt you, Sabrina? He asks solemnly, like he's going to avenge whoever did this to me. And I burst out laughing. No, Brian, I say. Nobody hurt me. It's, it's hard to explain. Try me, he says. I roll my eyes. It's a door he's trying to open, the door labeled intimacy. I don't want to walk through that door because it'll get him to thinking he's getting inside my head, my heart. This could be the moment that, even if unconsciously in his mind for now, plants the seed for that crucial future moment when he urges me to look at him. To look at him, damn it. And he'll actually point to my head and then to my heart and demand that I let him in like we're in the sequel to Love and Basketball or Brown Sugar or pick your own favorite black romantic comedy. Better yet, if he's extra, he may even go 90s R&B and say something about not being like the other men I've known and that he doesn't care about my past and that he doesn't have to be the first and just wants to be the last. And the next thing you know, I'm in that straight jacket called a wedding dress. And the next thing you know after that, I'm taking all his shit in divorce court. Not because I need any of his shit, but because, well, anytime I'm in the courtroom, taking all is what I do. 
So trust me, Brian, I'm saving us both a lot of headaches when I say no thank you to the pillow talk. But he is stroking my hair and now my scalp, and it is so nice to be touched. I may exhibit all the signs of classic emotional unavailability as that quack-ass therapist I went to a few times proclaimed with such certainty before I decided, fuck this. But my body cannot deny how nice, how necessary it is to be touched. It's just something I do before a closing argument, I say. And when Connie comes around, I think to myself, Brian's hand stills. You did this? He says. Yes, I say. His fingers resume, lighter now on me. But why? I don't know, I say. It's just something I have to do. It's like the pain from pinching myself is greater than my fear of the closing. Gives me this release. And then... I'm not afraid anymore. That's not just pinching, Sabrina, says Brian. You got like slave level scars on you. You were really hurting yourself. I shrug. I told you it's hard to explain, I say. It's like this rush of energy I get afterwards, this burst of, I don't know, extra confidence, something. Well, um, that's some strange shit, says Brian. Well, I say, you ask. You sure you don't want to go talk to somebody about that? Says Brian. <laughs> you mean like a shrink? I say. Hell yeah, I mean like a shrink. Says Brian. That sounds like that cutting shit teenage girls do these days. I consider. Maybe it is, I say. I never thought about it like that, but maybe it is. Brian chuckles, but not without affection. So the great Ms. Wright is afraid of closing arguments. I smile in the dark. I wouldn't necessarily use the word afraid, I say. Oh, really, says Brian. He draws lazy circles on my hip. So what is the great Ms. Wright afraid of? He asks. And that is when I decide even more that we are done here. When there's talk of fears and whatnot, especially in the dark, we're doing too much. Tonight will be the last night with Brian. It's been so real. I'd make him leave now, but no need to not get one last hump for the road, especially since it is good with him. Right now, I say, turning and rolling on top of him, I'm afraid I'll be the best you'll ever have. I bend to kiss him, but he stops me. What's wrong? I ask. I can see his eyes are serious on mine in the dark. He places his hands on my hips over the sheets. We've made love twice tonight already, Sabrina, he says softly. I'm good on that front. What I want to say is that I wasn't making love, that I was just having some good sex, but I'll leave it at, well, I'm not done yet. You came both times, Brian exclaims. Three times, as a matter of fact. And, I say, I want one more. And, Brian enjoins, I want to know what you're afraid of. Thank God his cell phone rings, because it's here, right, very fucking here, with him staring tenderly into my eyes, that I lose all attraction for him. 
I'm praying the kid's fever has gotten higher so he'll get up and leave right very fucking now. Shit, Brian mutters. BJ's mom said she'd only call if his fever worsened. I'm going to have to take this. Oh, by all means, I say. It's probably best that we end now. Good dads tend to attach quickly anyway. Not that I would know from personal experience. His fever is 102, Brian says as he pulls on his clothes. He sounds nervous. Wow, I say. That's, um, terrible. I sit up, draw my knees to my chest, and wonder if I'll go with a late-night glass of Merlot or Chardonnay once he gets the fuck out of my goddamn house. Ten minutes later, I'm alone, blessedly, happily. And another twenty efficient minutes later, I've sipped on a nice Cabernet Sauvignon, I've finished myself off quite nicely with my vibrator, I've donned my sleep mask, and I am taking my ass to sleep. No more muss, no more fuss. And yes, I know saying, not that I know about good dads from personal experience, sounds like an iceberg type statement, a statement that is short and casual, but alludes to an ocean of pain bubbling just under the surface, in this case, daddyless daughter pain that festers just under my cool, uncaring exterior. A statement designed as a setup for later in this story, which is when I'll have a satisfyingly huge breakdown and come to the epic realization that, wait for it, I have a problem attaching to men because, gasp, sob, my emotionally unavailable father never attached to me. Maybe I'll roll up on Brian at his house or at the airport because in these kinds of stories, people are always chasing each other down at airports and I'll explain all of this and maybe it can even be raining so we can go love Jones on him when he kisses me. <laughs> well, we're not going that route. First of all, I grew up a latchkey kid watching Oprah after school, so I know I have a problem attaching to men and that it probably does have something to do with my father or more specifically with the fact that I never knew him. That's life though, and there are bigger things about which to break down. Second, I'm not going to end up with Brian simply because I'm not calling him anymore. And when he calls me, I'm not going to pick up. Third, I'm not about to do no rain scene for no damn body. My hair maybe could take the rain. It's on the straighter side, thanks to my father. But still, it's not that straight. So fuck rain scenes. When I say, not that I'd know from personal experience, I really just mean that I never knew my father. Do you think your life would be different if you had? That quack-ass therapist had asked over her quack-ass wire-rimmed glasses all those years ago when Jamie had insisted I see someone. Connie had relapsed and we'd had that big fight and she'd left again with Cecil's dumb ass and I'd missed two days of law school classes and so Jamie had found someone and taken me herself waiting outside in the lobby to make sure I didn't ditch the session. Why even ask the question? I'd replied to the quack-ass therapist. What's done can't be undone and I'm fine. Are you? She'd said. I'd looked at her and hated Jamie. I'm fine enough, I'd said. But still, thinking about your real father might be worth contemplating, she'd said. It isn't, I'd replied. Okay. She'd nodded, glanced down at her notes. So tell me about your mother and stepfather. I'd swallowed. My mother was drunk half the time, and he was drunk all the time, I'd said. 
the quack-ass therapist had looked up then with a gentle smile. Maybe you wouldn't have had a stepfather if your father had stayed. That would be a pretty significant change, don't you think? My stomach had tightened. You said before in a previous session that he died? I said who had died, I had said. Your stepfather, the quack-ass therapist had said. He died when you were 17. Yes, I had said, and I hadn't flinched when I said it either. It was a pretty sudden event, it sounded like. He hit his head and died, you said? I had just shrugged. Okay, so tell me about your sister. The quack-ass therapist had looked up again. You have a twin. That must be interesting, no? Anyways, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes statements are just statements. And sometimes sex is just sex. And sometimes sex needs to stay that way forever, even for women. Scotty has his back to me when I walk into his office at 8 the next morning. He smiles when he sees me, his ears still pressed to the phone. Absolutely, he says smoothly, motioning for me to sit. Look, McKay, if there's anything I hate, it's a snitch. You know this. We're from the same neighborhood. Scotty sits in his chair, leans back, rubs a hand over his forehead, and a silvering lock of hair falls across it. But what you're asking for is still within attorney-client privilege, so I'm not disclosing that. He laughs. No, you can't quote me on that. Scotty hangs up. Reporter wants a statement about the McLaughlin case, he says. He's settling, by the way. Probably a good idea for him, I say settling into one of the plush chairs across from Scotty's desk. It's a very good idea for him, Scotty says, his grubby South Boston accent slipping into his words. We would have crushed him in court, and I would have enjoyed it because the guy's a fucking idiot. He is, I agree. And again, outstanding job on the Torley case, says Scotty. Mm, it's what you pay me for, isn't it? I say. True, he says. He looks up now, his blue eyes unwavering on me. You look good, Sabrina. One corner of my mouth lifts. You too, Scotty. My eyes slide for a moment to Scotty's family photo. He's flanked by two sons, both in college now, and his doting wife, Tipper. She'd cried at their silver anniversary party two years ago. Genuine tears of absolute adoration for her beloved husband. You doing okay? Scotty asks. I nod. I'm great, I say, and I mean it. I'm in my true home now, Schmoller in Denver, and I'm talking to the one person I know, besides the professor, of course, who loves the law as much as I do. I try to recall the smell of the sickness from last night, and I can't even summon it to my mind. Scotty's gaze lingers. I miss you, he says. Scotty, no, I say softly, shaking my head. After working side by side, Practically joined at the hip for 11 years. We fucked last year. It won't happen again. Scotty smiles ruefully. Something's come up, he says, his tone all business now. Okay, I say, my tone matching his. And just like that, we're the old us again. He stands, pours himself some iced water. Ja, ja, Devereaux, he says. I frown. Why do I know that name, I say. Scotty grimaces and then says, she's on that show, Atlanta Divorcees. 
And I groan, Scotty, just hear me out, he says. Hasn't she sued her ex-husband before, I say. I remember Camille going on and on about it at some point. She loves that show. Four times, Scotty confirms. She's never won, but apparently it makes for great ratings. This is sounding worse by the second, I say. Scotty grins. We actually represented her husband, Marcus Bunker, the last time she sued. Marcus Bunker, he's a, what, basketball player or something, I ask. He's a former football player, Sabrina, says Scotty. The shadow, only the greatest football player of the 90s and the only athlete to win seven Super Bowls through 541 yards in one game. That means nothing to me, I say. I thought you were sports literate, says Scotty. I am boxing literate, I correct him. Ask me about boxing. Scotty chuckles. You would love two people pummeling each other. I would. I say. I catch Scotty's gaze for a long moment. I remember what it was like that first time with him. He'd been so urgent, almost boyish in his eagerness, and how sweetly he touched me. But no, no more. It's the only way we can keep working together, and we both understand that we can't have it for each other both ways. I'll leave the firm, I had told him after the last time. And he'd said, absolutely not. I'd clear my throat now. So he's called the shadow, I ask. After another moment, Scotty nods, a tacit agreement between us. And we are again, two lawyers, a team, in love with our work. The shadow, Scotty says, is one of the greatest and most beloved football players of all time. He has one of the greatest stories ever. Oh. Okay, I say. Last pick in the draft, got on with the Falcons. Scotty peers at me. Any of this ringing a bell? I shake my head and Scotty laughs, and the air is easy again between us. Well, Mr. Bunker was a third-string quarterback, and we, meaning the Atlanta Falcons, are playing the New Orleans Saints. Scotty's eyes are lit up. Uh-huh, I say. And the first-string quarterback is out for the season, injured, says Scotty. Uh-huh, I say. Scotty leans forward, and the second-string quarterback gets injured during the first quarter of the game. Right, I say. Scotty's voice lowers reverentially. So third-string quarterback, Marcus Bunker, comes in and we're like, who is this guy? And then in that one game, his first one where he gets to play Sabrina, he throws 518 yards and sets the NFL single-game passing record. Scotty pauses, looking at me for a reaction. Great, I say. Scotty shakes his head and laughs. The man is part of the 500-yard passing club, Sabrina. Only 18 players are part of that club. I pause. Isn't he the guy on that morning show here, I ask. Scotty looks at me, then shakes his head as if he's given up. I can't believe that's the only way you know him, he says. But yes, Marcus Bunker is a guy on Hello America, which incidentally is the highest rated morning show in the country. Has been for seven years, which is when he got there. America loves the man. Hell, I love him. And you said we represented him, I say? Scotty nods. Simon had him. Simon is another lawyer at our firm. And we won, says Scotty. Almost lost, but we eked it out. 
That's right, I say. I remember now the football player in the house, the house. I snap my fingers as the details of the case come back to me. She sued him for that house and Simon was about to lose. And I told him to stop with the no prenup angle and to instead look into that Georgia state law loophole about the 1980 zoning laws. You did tell him to do that. Scotty smiles. And he did win. I smile too. He did win, didn't he? I say. I do love winning. Scotty's smile widens. And Jaja figured out you're why she lost, he says. So why? I begin. And then I look at Scotty and he looks at me. No, I say. Sabrina, just hear me out. No, Scotty, I say. I'm not representing her. She only wants you, he says. Scotty, come on, I say. I'm a real lawyer. I take on real cases. My phone beeps. It's Robin, my assistant. Are you here? She's texted. Jaja pays well, Scotty says. Great, I say, standing. Make someone else's day. Scotty's eyes travel down the front of my suit and back up before he says, She pays extremely well. Didn't you say you wanted an even newer Mercedes? I give Scotty a look and he smiles. And she may actually have something this time. I would hope so, I retort, but I sit back down. Scotty knows me too well. I always want to know a Mercedes. This time, says Scotty, she's going after the business. The business, I repeat. Scotty nods, pulls on his glasses, and picks up a sheet of paper, skimming it. They're a uh, blender, the body master. Huh, the body master, I say. I lean back in my chair. I remember the body master. Everybody had one for a minute. Outsold the George Foreman grill, says Scotty. Mr. Bunker says everything is his and that they had a prenup, but she says a blender was her idea and that only under the extreme duress caused to her by that animal. Scotty blandly reads the words off the page. Did she agree to put the body master in his name? I mull Scotty's words. That sounds unwinnable, I say after a moment, and Scotty grins. He knows I love a challenge even more than a new car. Think of it this way, says Scotty. Great publicity for you. I don't need Atlanta Divorcee's level publicity. We both know I am way beyond that, I say. Plus, as much as possible, I try to keep a low profile. Robin beeps again. Are, are you here yet? She's texted. Of course you don't need it, Sabrina, says Scotty. But Atlanta Divorcee's is the biggest show on cable right now, and Zsa's a star. The publicity can't hurt. And it should be a fairly quiet case. Should, being the operative word here, I say. I don't even watch that show, and even I know that that woman is the loudest creature on the planet. With Scotty, I text Robin. What's up? I ask her. Just see her once, Scotty cajoles. I'll owe you one. I glance up from my phone for a moment. You always owe me one, I retort. I'd love to owe you more, Scotty says. He raggles his eyebrows. Scotty is all I say. Most important, he goes on, shifting effortlessly back into business mode again. It's a lot of money for us and a shitload for you. He writes down a figure, slides a sheet of paper by way. Give yourself two newer Mercedes. I look at the figure, back up at Scotty. Even I'm surprised. She's willing to pay that much? I ask. From Robin. We have an emergency, 
she's texted, but I roll my eyes. Robin is easily spooked. To work with you, the best lawyer in the city? Yes, she is willing to pay that much, says Scotty. I look again at the figure, but my phone beeps again too from Robin. Someone named Connie is on the phone, she's texted, and my left hand tremors ever so slightly. It's only a matter of time before she shows up on my front doorstep again. One meeting, I say to Scotty as I text, on my way to Robin. Thank you, Sabrina, says Scotty. I am not promising anything, I say. Understood, says Scotty, this time trying to hide another grin. There's a knock on the door now. Robin, everything okay? Scotty asks, looking from her to me. Everything is fine, I answer, before Robin's nervous ass can say anything. And I told you I was on my way. I say to her, it's an emergency, she loud whispers, and I said that I am on my way to deal with it, Robin, I say, enunciating progressively more slowly and clearly with each word, although my heart is thumping a mile a minute now. I look back at Scotty. What day will Jaja be here? I ask. Scotty looks behind me at the clock on the wall. Uh, five minutes from now. He says, Scotty, I exclaim, and he shrugs. I told you, she's serious, he says. There is no way I'll be able to deal with Connie in just five minutes. But my crisis and lawyer instincts, both honed to perfection for better or worse, kick in, and I feel the familiar pulse of cortisol-fueled adrenaline that fuels my entire existence warming up. And I say crisply, almost even cheerfully, wonderful, looking forward to meeting her. And I look at Robin and I say, shall we go? When we're out of earshot, Robin whispers frantically, I, I, I really didn't want to bother you, Sabrina, but this Connie, she said you'd know who she was. She just sounded really upset on the phone, like, like she was crying or something. Robin struggles to keep up with my long strides, even though she's taller and wearing flats. She, she said it was life or death, Sabrina, she says. I just chuckle. Clearly, Robin has never dealt with a crackhead, especially a smart one like my sister. Oof, my girl Sabrina is a fucking beast. You hear me? I just love her so much. So what do y'all think of her? Well, however you feel, please head over to my Facebook group called Episodes Crew, Black Fiction Lovers, Writers, and Other Cool Ass Folks and share those thoughts. I will put the URL and title in the show notes. Uh, But thank you again for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes. And thanks so much to everybody who's already left one. It really does make a difference. And if you have an Android and feel helpless because you can't leave a review, don't. Instead, just tell somebody about episodes. That's enough. I will see you all next week for episode nine, which will be Jamie's episode. And you will meet Charles, the guy she's been texting in this episode. So please make sure you come back. Y'all be well. Take it away, Arden. Thank you. One more info from my mommy. Please visit LeslieQuickless.com. Deuces.